Huge news, Swirlians. Massive news. Get ready because Ain't That Swell is absolutely frothing to announce Ocean and Earth as the official and exclusive hardware and accessories partner of the Swellians. Doesn't get any more core than the Sussex Inlet brand. It's been making the world's best leggies, surf hats, tie-downs, repair kits, ponchos, wetty buckets and board covers since 1979, mate. Whether it's down the road or over to Indo or into the far realms, just rinse that dot and soak yourself in core stoke. O&E has been there as part of the journey the entire way. Kicked off, of course, by Brian Cregan, uh, former touring pro who, along with Rabbit Bartholomew, Paul Nielsen, Harry Hodge and Brucey Raymond, was one of the original, iconic, band-on-the-run crew. Epic movie. Check it out if you haven't. But, uh, yeah. O&E was the brainchild that just allowed Brian to surf his entire life. And he has supported many of the core underground hellman heathen icons along the way. But uh, most notably in recent years, Owen and Tyler Wright, our boy Ryan Callanan, Russ Berserky Bjerke, Freddie Marais and Kanoa Igarashi, Mondo Extreme Looney Jughead Allport, and Next Wave Flare Maestros, Coda Walters and Lennox Smith. And if you want to get in behind an independently owned company run by surfers for surfers, now is the time to do it as we run into Chrissy. There is so much iconic stuff these guys have been making for so long. Their Surf Hats G-Land series, the Bingen series, the Indo Stiff Peak. They've got board covers, coffins and air cons. Tough as guts, built to last, primo gear and the world's best leggies man like 1xt the world's strongest leash no joints no weak points 40 percent stronger the one piece leash's extruded cord design eliminates the molded end join which is the weakest point in traditional leashes constructed using new production techniques eight millimeter swivels and a unique new formula in the urethane cord this leash is superior in strength stretch and memory retention they got softboards, mate. They got the lot. Just jump on the website, oceanandearth.com.au and get your hardware sorted for Chrissy. It's a quality-tested Australian surf accessory company, trusted products, independently owned and run by surfers for surfers and selling to core retailers. Man, oh, man, it's just so sick that the company that sponsored the original HB O&E Pro Junior and is still back in Gromit's state titles, surfing New South Wales, etc., is on board with the Swellians, and we are frothing to be back in this partnership. Oceanandearth.com.au, exclusive hardware and accessories partner of the Swellians. Get on there now. Get your Chrissy started. What? Grom's got a new board? Get your leggy from Ocean and Earth. Need a coffin to travel? Get it from O&E, man. Crusty old demon and you need a surf hat? Bruh. O&E, bruh. Get on it now. Get on it now. Ain't That Swell presents Core Lords. Today we're joined by Justin Jughead Allport, a day one from the live experiment and one of the, the great Australian underground charges, an OG 
in the slab chasing realm, a king of cones of mortal conequence, and a guy who's just a really gritty blue collar battler spec human who I have the utmost respect for, man. One of the greats in Australian surf culture, in my opinion. Just a, a really honest worker with incredible skill in waves of serious conequence. Mate, uh, hasn't had an easy run in life by any stretch. And we go deep into that towards the end of this interview. And yeah, it's pretty emotional stuff. Um, but, you know, these are conversations that need to be had. Welcome to Call <laughs> Lords, yeah. Jug. It's your, uh, it's your second turn on this program. You are, you're a day one-er from the live experiment. In fact, I might even drop a bit from that Gold Cone Piece award-winning performance in right here. I thought I could wipe out Hoya. I'll just sit. I'm the wipeout king, and you just trump me. You trump me. I you trumped him. I never trumped anyone. You trumped him. Trump. You trumped him. Was that pipeline? I'll just set the scene for you, Jug. I'm ready. We all get down to the banner over here. This is it. This is it. This is the last story. Do you want to hear the last story where Hoya got fucking lit? I thought I was so good at it, but go, Vaughn. Here we go. Please don't. <laughs> Mate, what do you remember from that night? Surely you don't remember anything. At the Wicko? Yeah. Oh, you remember the name of the pub? That's a, that's a start. Yeah, only because leading up to it, I knew I had to go to the Wicko. Other than that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I heard the uh, replay when I was in Bali with my kids and uh, I was asleep just trying to listen to it and I fucking... I reckon I heard about one minute of my voice and went, that is the most annoying fucking human. And I just fucking didn't listen to any more of it. Not for, not for a couple of weeks anyway. Oh, that's fair enough. I, uh, I struggle to listen to the program. Everyone hates the, the sound of their own voice, uh, particularly after 11 schooners in five, <laughs> in five minutes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Yes. Uh, it was an iconic performance. You, you you set us you set us up for what became a, a really golden run there. That was uh, as good as it gets. But we didn't really get to tap into your story, which is fucking so classic. Like you know, you're one of the all time underground call Lord Confine Hellman maniacs. Well, that's your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, let's get into it. Uh, you know, where did you cut your teeth? I understand. I don't know if we want to name the wave because, uh, yeah, I don't think these waves oh, need right. to be named necessarily. It's up to you. It's your local joint. You're the loke. You get to, you get to, you've set the standard there. You get to kind of decide whether you name it or not. But, uh, yeah, I understand you, you first surfed it as an 11 year old and it's a consequential wave. It's, it's a slabbing A frame uh, that sucks in. South swell, which is kind of the predominant swell, so it breaks a lot. Um, yeah, talk us through your, your introduction to that joint. Uh, I remember hearing about it when I was in primary school, and uh, yeah, just guys talk about it. They're all older guys than me, and just one day I thought this is it. I'm just going to go around there, and I waited for about an hour to meet some older guy, and he didn't turn up, so I walked around and. Um, yeah, I was, I think I was in year six. Uh, anyway, I ran into Mark Mono Stewart walking around 
one leg on his crutches and I asked him if he needed a hand carrying the board and he said no. And he probably would never remember it, but I, I remember it, you know, because it was the first time I went there. And, uh, yeah, anyway, there was only a few guys out and it was three to four foot and straight away I was just addicted to the, I don't know, the adrenaline of just jumping off the rocks and getting out there to start with and then, yeah, and the barrels obviously. Probably wasn't much good at getting barreled, but back then, but yeah, just became a lifetime pursuit, I guess, to follow the car. Yeah. Mm, how classic is that? Bumping into a, a, a one legged Nilo, is, is Mono a Nilo? Yeah, yeah, fuck that's yeah, iconic. On your way out to the to the to the slab, and yeah, you yeah. fucking <laughs> that's the perfect introduction. <laughs> Can I carry a board? Fuck off, kid. <laughs> well, he wasn't that rude, but he was saying that to me. But yeah, no, it was not who I was expecting to see going around there, and yeah, it was bizarre and quite memorable. That's magic. And then you graduate uh, at fifteen to the zone, short paddle away, and uh. Mate, tell us about your early days out there and how you ended up uh, taking on that joint. I, I mean, at, at that time, like, what what roughly is the year? I mean, it feels like if you were 15, it's pretty early on in the the timeline of, of slab surfing. Yeah, I think the first time I've seen anyone surf it, it would have been 85 and uh... – I was like hanging at this house that like right where the, where you got to walk to get to the wave and Jason Buttonshaw and uh, Nikki Woods were actually at the house and uh, they were like, I'll meet you around, meet you around there, you know? And uh, I was running a bit behind them. So I ran around and as I got around there, they like we went around, oh, I went around to surf Crackneck, I don't mind saying it. And, and, uh, and they were at the zone, but they, they didn't realise, they hadn't surfed it before, so they just ran around to surf Crackneck, but they'd paddle out the zone, and they were paddle, like, we all called it indicators, the bodyboarders named it the zone years and years later. But yeah, so we, I, I run around, I'm only like 12 or 13, and uh, yeah, they're trying to catch waves at indicators, and I'm like, what the hell are these guys doing? They've got no idea, and I'd only been surfing around Crackneck for probably two years at the time. And, uh, yeah, a bit later on, probably four, three years later, I, I was like far out, you know, I looked surfable and I remembered that they'd been out there and they tried to surf it. So it's only quite a small day. Normally I wouldn't go out there now unless it was sort of four to six foot, but I think it was about three foot and I was trying to surf it and then realized that I could get into it. And, and it was a lot different to what everyone thought. It was like, Real scary to say you were going to surf it, only because it sort of hadn't been done. But once, once you sort of did it, you realise there was a way around it. And you can do it. Yeah, talk us through the setup there, because, mate, it's as technical as, as any wave I can really think of. Uh, and mate, yeah, growing up, I had a, a sequence of Bullet McKenzie on my wall for for years, just in the most boiled, like gurgling, fucking mutant wave of thousand lips in it uh it doesn't look very stand-up friendly but you guys managed to find entries into it yeah like when you see those photos and talking about the photos of bullet and stuff there was guys like tim jones and ann stewart and a couple of those bodyboarders out there in the early days like i'd say 
late nineties. I mean, sorry, early nine, late eighties, early nineties, sort of thing. But you know, the ones you see that you see, that they're the ones that you know make the magazines. And obviously, there's a lot of days that don't make the magazines, and they're the days that we started out there and we started like small and and got bigger and just yeah. Once there was a few of us doing it. Yeah, we just pushed each other until we got to those sort of days that you do see in the magazines. But pretty sure we will out there on some of those days before any of the photographers and that got out there and started shooting it. And if it wasn't for guys like Ian Stewart and Tim Jones, both bodyboarders and, and like really good at what they do, <laughs> I'd never admit anybody where was good at anything <laughs> back in the day. But <laughs> I think I've matured a bit since then and uh, yeah. They they started shooting photos out there after you know they were they were riding it on their bodyboard and uh, yeah so th them guys have sort of helped push not only the um, progression out there but also the exposure of the place which ended up you know a lot of people would say that you ruined it but you know you can go around I was out there a couple of weeks ago and there was two of us out so you can still get your days out there yeah it's one of those kind of waves like you you got to be pretty elite to, to want to take part in it, especially on a stand up. Um, I mean, like back in those days, what years are we talking? And yeah, like uh, where did you even look for inspiration at that point? Were you looking more towards the bodyboarders? Like, I feel like that would kind of predated a, a lot of the, the kind of slab shamanism that, that we're seeing these days. Like, I feel like that would have been pretty, like I said, early on in the, in the timeline of, of surfing slabs even. Yeah, it was late 80s, like, and, yeah, I've got fond memories of just Tracks magazines, Shark Island, and uh, that was just, I don't even know the guys' names out there and stuff, but I just remember seeing so many shots of Shark Island and just thinking, wow, this is the way, you know. And I actually got a chance when I was about 13 to go down and surf it, and uh, I paddled out there and sort of, Pretty much dogged it, <laughs> but uh, no, you said yeah. it's fair enough. The joint's pretty fucking but, intimidating. Uh, but when I came back from that, I just remember surfing crackneck a bit, and then I think that pretty much was the inspiration to uh, to it was around the same time that I uh, I was a bit later than when I remember seeing Nikki Wood and Jason Buttonshaw out there at the indicator, but. Uh, uh, it just brought back a good memory when I seen it the next time. Like, cause you can sit at Crackneck and just, it's a short paddle, like backdoor to off the wall away. So you can sit there and just see some amazing waves go through. And if there's no one on it and the crowd sort of turns up at Crackneck, you can just paddle over there and, and sort of, you know, get away from the crowd. And uh, yeah, those Shark Island photos definitely inspired me. Yeah. And that's, sad of me not to know exactly who their guys were but some of them were on single fins and stuff like that so yeah wow that's so crazy yeah that era of like i guess it's kind of uh the tail end of jim banks's tenure out there like rusty moran like uh i guess like jezza herback and those guys but just the the idea of jim banks taking on shark island backside on a single fin blows my mind <laughs> Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, the um, yeah, there's some really good guys actually. When you started mentioning Rusty and um, uh, 
Oh, Spag McKinley's older brother's name. He's a freaking legend. He's still. Yeah, is that Ox McKinley? Is uh, that the dude? Ox, yeah, Ox. He's a legend. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, them them guys are, you know, he's only a little bit older than me, Ox, I think. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a generation, I guess it was somewhere between Jim Banks and Ox that I sort of don't know who they were. But, man, I just remember they were still imprinted in my brain of the track shots. And, yeah, that was probably the most. Yeah, when I was 13, guys that were surfing Shark Island, they were probably like 20 to 25 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's trippy, man. Like, the island is the original Aussie slab, but it's been fully forgotten, it feels like. Like, you never see clips or, or photos from it anymore. It's still there, fucking slabbing and chuffing away. But, yeah, <laughs> I, honestly, <laughs> can't really think of uh, the last clip I saw out there. Nate Florence and, and Kip Caddy had a crack at it. That's, like, the first. And that was a sick clip. I love that clip, man. Um, yeah. But that's, yeah, like, that really the there's a kid called Harry. Um, oh, I just had his name, Fisher. I was sent a clip of him just recently out there. That was pretty sick. Yeah, such uh, a sick joint. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mate, talk talk to us about your upbringing. I understand. Uh, you know, you were one of four, pretty much raised by a single mom because your your dad was away for long stretches at a time as a as a merchant seaman, and yeah, your your mom was like what twenty one with four kids or something. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, she was 21, had four kids already at that age. Uh, and my dad sort of he, his father was uh, MUA secretary actually, he was a seaman himself, merchant seaman, and then some of that had followed in his father's footsteps and uh, and did that, like you know, because it was a pretty decent income back then, and uh, and yeah, so. He was doing 10 to 12 week stints or 10 to 16 week stints. So, yeah, you, it was like he was never there or he was always there. It was sort of, sort of one or the other, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating, man. And and how were those, those stints when he was away? Like, how did your mum cope with, with four kids <laughs> at 21? That's melting. I don't, melting. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how she coped. So when my older sister was like 16, my mum would have been 32 with, 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 with like an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 16-year-old. She would have been 32. It just blows my mind. But So I should sort of be a bit more leaning on, on my mum. But, uh, yeah, it is pretty mind-boggling. But she used to get us to footy training and to down the beach and to my – brother to basketball and my yeah, sister to roller skating and she used to get us all around. Sometimes I'd be left at footy training an hour, two hours after, you know, I was supposed to be picked up and sometimes I was left at the beach, you know, but totally different days today. But yeah, we'd just spend the whole day at the beach or make your way from footy down the beach or whatever. And uh, yeah, I guess it was pretty hard back then, but Everyone was sort of in a similar boat, so you didn't feel like you were hard done by until you grew up and you had kids yourself and you look back and you go, wow, look at what they've got and look at how we had it. But I'm sure, you know, everyone heard their grandparents talk about how bad they had it back in the day and whatever. So, you know, everything just evolves. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that, yeah. 
And and this is Shelly Beach, is it? That's that's where you're living at this point, or where were you living? So I was living sort of. I grew up in the entrance, and uh, but then my parents bought a house at Tumbiambi, so we moved out there, and then my parents split up, so I moved back to the entrance, and then had a house at Bad Bay right near Cracknack, and so it was like a bit of a triangle from the entrance to Cracknack to sort of. Tumbiumbi, which is a bit inland, maybe five minutes, maybe a bit more. And uh, yeah, so anywhere between any of those. And I live with my grandmother a little bit as well. So she was at the entrance. Uh, and I live with my sister for a little bit. Moved in with my mate's parents by the time I was, you know, at the end of high school. At the end of high school, I was, uh, yeah, I was living by myself or with my dad, who was sort of not there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and how would you describe the place, like the sandy coast in those days? Oh, I hear so many people tell me they've moved up the mid north coast lately, or there's somewhere, and they're like, it's just like the central coast twenty years ago. And uh, and I guess if you you know picture some sort of laid back town up up the coast today, I guess that's sort of what the central coast was twenty years ago, but I was going through school 40 years ago, you know. I'm 50 next month. And so, yeah, it was 40 years ago and it was a lot more laid back. There's a, a lot, uh, you know, hardly any traffic. Crowds are all at the same place. They're all at North Shell if you're a good surfer, South Shell if you're a kook or a clubby. Um, same, same, yeah. Yeah, not, not, not much. At, not many places, not many people surf in the other spots, you know. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty mellow back then. Yeah, I understand things are pretty hectic at home when your old man got back from his big stints at sea. Uh, mate, tell us about the time your parents got zonked on acid and, and drove you guys home. Oh, wow, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if my parents want me to talk about this, but anyway, oh, I just you know, I had I, I, I couldn't really pinpoint it happening until. You know, I was about 30 or something, and my older sister said, oh, something about, we're just bringing up, uh, just me and my sister were just bringing up about how we were brought up and how we bring our own children up. Uh, and my sister goes, man, like, like, you know, what what they did back then you'd never do today, you know, just would never be acceptable. She's like, what about that time coming back from Nora Head and... Uh, she goes, remember that time? And I'm like, nah. She goes, we're all crying in the back seat of the Kingswood. All four of us were in the back seat. And we're, well, we were all crying. We're freaking out. At first, I wasn't. I didn't know what was going on. And then and then my sisters were crying. My brothers were crying. I, I, I didn't know why. And Because uh, my, my parents were both on, they were tripping, driving down the, <laughs> driving down Wilford Barrett Drive. And they thought the trees were jumping out of them. And. There's trees lined that whole stretch, and they thought I was jumping out of them and trying to <laughs> trying to grab hold of the car and all the different stuff. And my my like me, and my siblings didn't know what the hell was going on, but my older one knew, like Lisa, she my older sister, she knew sort of what was happening. So it was sort of scaring her, and because she was scared, we were all scared. But yeah, she just reminded me, and I sort of had this flashback. I distinctly remember it, but you know, at the time, I sort of didn't know what was going on, and later on. I was, sort of brush that out of my head, but yeah, 
<laughs> when she said it, it just came flying back. And <laughs> yeah, that was, I don't know. When I was young, when I was probably 15, I was probably only like eight or something then. But when I was like 15, my dad just pulled me aside and told me about acid and told me to watch myself and <laughs> tell me the effects of it. And I never touched it since. And I sort of, a little bit rattled that I didn't actually. <laughs> All things are in the appropriate dosage for sure. I, I found micro dosing it like LSD in particular, like two, like say, what is it? Two to three drops. So like, yeah, like around about an eighth of a tab or an eighth of a full dose. It's been so good for my mental health. Like it's just a full reset. Like I just get a, that like that day, that I'm on it. I'm, I'm extra sharp and extra lucid and able to kind of, uh, dial up my emotional control and emotional maturity. And then the following day I get a free hit at it. It's like a full reset. I'm just like, all right, back to, back to square one. Here we go again. So like it kind of helps me process the stress of the week or whatever stress has happened before that. And then I get to reset the afterglow on that day afters magic but i've had the worst times of my life on that shit and also fucking man lucky to be here to be honest like i could easily have been fucking knocked <laughs> off in south africa uh, for having too much and, and losing my shit so mate it's like any medicine or any tonic or fucking anything if you have too much of it it'll make you sick yeah well, like i know you know what scared me from trying it is because you know i knew guys that took too much of it when I was young, like guys I went to school with, guys that were really good surfers and uh, like one of the best surfers that ever came out of our board riders. He, he was gone on acid by the time he was 20. Wow. And, uh, he, and, and there's another guy before him. Uh, we just, I remember him down, we were sitting on the sand one day and he, he was throwing his arm out and back in. He's throwing his arm out and back in. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm catching these seagulls. They're on the horizon. Just getting every one of them we're just looking at him and like that was just him for the rest of his life he hasn't sort of changed but he was just he just believed he was his arm was like go go gadget arm or something you know just he was just in a different realm to anyone else like just <laughs> and that scared the hell out of me from using uh acid or actually you know what other than marijuana and alcohol coffee i've not done any drugs and it's uh yeah that's just because of my fear in seeing people overdose my fear in seeing my parents uh and then you know some of the things they went through and some of the things i witnessed as a kid just my fear of just not having control uh just got the better of me and you know, I, I think, oh, I've had a sheltered life when it comes to some of those experiences and I wish I sort of experimented in some of those things. But uh, at the same time, yeah, I'm scared. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I mean, I guess adrenaline was your drug of choice. Uh, I mean, how important was surfing in, in giving you like an escape or an outlet as a grom and um, in particular the, the kinds of waves that you're attracted to you know, you talk about having fear of losing control yet at the same time you're surfing waves that are so heavy, uh, that, I mean, I guess you have an element of control in the situations that you put yourself in, but 
probably not so much at the start when you, when you're first feeling your way uh, into those kinds of conditions. Yeah. Like, um, you know, talk to us just about your, your attraction to those kinds of waves and, and what they meant to you at, at that time in your life when you were coming of age. Yeah. I think it would have been when I was about 12 or something, my parents separated and, and um, yeah, and it was sort of ugly at the start and, and I didn't, uh, you know, I had no answers for that. And I just found the ocean was the great escape. Like, you know, I've heard it so many times before, but it was exactly that, that was it for me. Like it was the great escape and, uh, and then, I don't know, I, didn't, I don't think it was little man syndrome, but I was pretty little when I was a kid. <laughs> but I used to just love, like, sort of throw myself over on a big one. You know, when, when I say a big wave, like, I mean a four-foot wave or a five-foot you know, five wave. When, you know, when I was 11 or something, you know. Um, and then just doing that, it's, I did feel the adrenaline from it. I wasn't doing it just to try and show off to me mates or anything like that. Like I was to start with, but then I felt the adrenaline from it. And then that was more than anything that took over my body was like, far out, I don't need to show off to my mates. I can do this when there's no one around and get that full, pure rush. And, uh, and then there's these outer reefs where I live sort of off, off the coast a bit and hard to get to and out of sight and stuff like that. And then, when it was big, if it was ever crowded where I live, I was trying to find somewhere different. And a couple of my mates who were with me just wanted to surf these sort of offshore reefs and stuff. And, and then once we did, and I just found there was just so much like, I don't know, it was just like silent out there. And it was just so like, I guess I, I don't, I should meditate. I've tried it a bit and not that good at it, but, uh, I guess it was like meditating now. Like you're just out there in the elements and uh, and the more raw the conditions on the day, the more joy and stuff I got out of it and the more, I don't know, satisfaction I got. And uh, and then once I found waves like that and and days like that, I just, that was an even better escape than just going for a surf. It was going for a surf and sort of like meditating at the same time. So... Yeah, that was a huge part of my upbringing, just chasing waves like that because, yeah, I just felt alone and I, and I was, like, escaping my reality, which, you know, at the time, my own life was shit, like real shit, and, uh, yeah, I was just escaping that, really. Sometimes I didn't want to be with anyone else. Sometimes I didn't want to, like, definitely didn't want to tell my mates, you know, how shit, my, that was embarrassing. It was like, yeah. I felt defeated if I had to admit to my mates how bad life was at home and stuff like that. So going and finding those locations was just unbelievable. Just I felt like I had my own little purpose, my own little sanctuary out there. And yeah, 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 I hear it a lot, but it's like, you know, going surfing to escape, but that's exactly what it was. Mm. Yeah. You know, boiling four to eight foot slabs is not everyone's idea of a sanctuary, but I get what you're saying and I'm reminded of something Andrew Huberman was saying that mad uh, scientist here on, on Joe Rogan, he's got his own podcast, but he's just talking about the fact that 
as long as you're present, as long as you are focused on the present moment and, and whatever it is that you're doing in that moment, you're in a far better place than if you're, you're ruminating or, or thinking about the past or the present or, or, or thinking about someone who wronged you. So just by virtue of putting yourself in situations where you're completely focused on the present because you have to be like, you, that's what the ocean demands. It demands you to pay attention. Uh, it forces you to. So it is in, in some ways, I don't know if it's what I would call meditation, but it, it it's releasing you from these patterns of thinking that are often more toxic than anything. You know, if you're stuck in a loop of thinking about people or, situations that have affected you negatively that, that aren't the present moment, then you're making yourself really sick. And I think that is a, a big factor in what makes people sick is um, not being able to, to let go of situations of traumas uh, and just mulling over them endlessly. It's definitely an issue for me. And um, yeah, meditation helps you break free of it. I think surfing in that way really can as well. Any kind of sport, anything that demands your, your pure attention and focus will help you kind of snap out of those toxic patterns of thinking. Yeah. Well, I was doing it for me. <laughs> yeah. You're hundred percent. Like I didn't realize until you started saying it, that when you're out there on days like that, it's just, you are focused, like fully focused on that present, like on the present. So it makes sense what whoever the guy was that said it on Rogan or whatever, but yeah. mm. Mate, Ulu Bomi, 1989. Uh, I don't know how old you are, but you can't have been very old. Uh, and it was one of the most memorable sessions of your life. Can you tell us about that session, that wave and how it changed everything for you? Yeah, oh, I was lucky enough in 89, did a bit of lying and uh, <laughs> said, to, said to one of the boys, he'd organised 20 guys to go on, on this trip to Bali. Yeah, yeah, I've got the money. I think I put a $100 deposit down, which I scraped together just after Christmas. It saved that much money over, I don't know how long I'd saved it for. But anyway, and I, I put a $100 deposit down. And um, I thought, how am I ever going to pay for this? I'll never be able to pay for it. I didn't tell my parents or nothing, you know. And then, um, then come June or something, or it was like probably May, I had to pay the whole lot. I think it was $1,100 back then to go to Bali, three weeks accommodation. Pretty sure a, a year ago you could have got, oh, just before COVID, you could have got a deal for 1100 bucks for the same. And that was like, in 1989 so anyway um my grandfather passed away my mum inherited a shitload of money and uh and she paid me oh she, she paid the rest of it for me couldn't believe it anyway so there i am 15 with um there's one or two other guys that were 15 the rest of the boys were like 18 or 19 straight to bali Mate, I was on the Peanuts pub crawl. Uh, I was 15, just pissed every night. Like, there wasn't one day there I wasn't pissed. And uh, far out. I look back at it and just go. <laughs> anyway, uh, oh, there was no, no forecast back then. You were walking from the main road into Ulu's still back then. 
like I know it's no 70s or whatever, but it was nearly the 90s. But you're still walking all the way in, pay 5,000 root for a board carrier to carry it in, walk it down in, your board into the into the cave for you down the bamboo ladder and stuff. Anyway, this day was huge, no one out. Man, three or four of the boys we were with decided we were going out and uh, it was the biggest, cleanest waves I'd ever seen. Never seen waves like it. And we paddled out and we just somehow, must have been a huge period swell or something, it was big lulls and and we just paddled out and we just kept paddling and paddling and paddling and paddling until we got up to the bommie. Like, I didn't know where the bommie was. I didn't know where outside corner was. I didn't know anything. Surfed the lose a couple of times. It was small. The bommie wasn't breaking outside corner. It was never breaking. But this day, tide was a little high for outside corner. But, yeah, I only had two boards. I had a 5.6 short board and a 6.6 gun and a 5.6, like, that was probably six inches bigger than me, like, or, or at least uh, four inches bigger than me. Rode the 6.6. Six. It was pretty slow. Anyway, I just remember jagging just one bomb, and that just set the tone for the rest of my session. And, uh, yeah, I fell in love with that wave. I still, I'll still chase that wave on nearly any swell I can. Uh, it's so unpredictable. It's not a perfect wave like outside corner. It's some days I just think I've just wasted the swell by sitting out there surfing it because it's just closeouts. Other days it's like real short, but then you get that unicorn and it's just like way out. It's, I don't know. It's a wave until the last sort of sort of five to eight years. You could go and surf any day. It was ten to twelve foot by yourself. Or you'd know that one other guy out there or two other guys that went out. So it's definitely not a wave most people would ever go to Indo for, but it's still a wave that just draws me back just because, I don't know, it still scares me. So that's probably why it draws me back. I'm terrified of it on its day. Wow, man. That's magic. Yeah, and it's a, a suitable challenge for you. You know, it kind of harks back to what we were talking about, just keeps you fixed in the present moment you surf and play for waves the mind can drift it's uh it's not this doesn't have the same intensity to it uh how did that did that kind of change the course of your life that session did it did it make you realize what you really wanted to do in life and, and the kinds of experiences that you wanted to chase definitely uh number one i couldn't believe how big and clean waves could get because like every time we get a big swell here, it's like windy or or majority of the times, you know. And then the amount of times I surfed on that trip that were big and clean, and you know swells coming from like as far away as South Africa or whatever, and just groomed, you know. Never seen anything like it. Uh, I'd never surfed on the west coast of any continent or anywhere, so I'd never seen proper, you know, proper ground swells and. Uh, yeah, just seeing that and just the culture back then in Bali was, you know, obviously so different to what it is today. That whole trip, you know, it's had started getting a little bit commercialised by the, you know, by then. Nowhere near anything what you see today. But that whole, I don't know, the surf, the culture, I just went far out. What am I doing where I live? Like, I've got to move here or I've got to, 
get out of where I am. And, you know, back in 89, the Central Coast was friggin' slow. And I thought it was way too fast paced. And I got to get to somewhere like Indo or something. And, but, you know, the original question was the waves. And that was what drew me there the most. Couldn't believe it. And I just thought, I don't know. The rush I got that day was like nothing I've ever felt. I hadn't surfed the bombies off my locals. I hadn't surfed the, the, like the reefs further out. So I'd never felt that open ocean power and speed of the swell. The, the speed of the, the, the swell moving that day, I just remember far out. That was so different to anything I'd experienced. So, yeah, I just wanted to chase some big, perfect waves after that trip. And I was lucky that I found a couple of big perfect waves at home. It, I was unlucky that once I found them, that I realised they only break three or four times a year. They're any good. This last year, they didn't even break at all. Uh, probably the worst winter I remember at all. But yeah, going back to surfing the waves here far out, then that just, by surfing these waves here offshore, I was like, wow. It, we got waves like this. Imagine what a West Coast somewhere else has got. And then, you know, obviously I started thinking, wow, why haven't I been to Hawaii? Started watching, you know, um, movies on Mavericks and just my mind was going a thousand miles an hour where I should be and it wasn't here. And it was chasing, you know, those type of waves. And how am I going to do it? I need to get a good job where I can, um, you know, have time off to, like my mind was going a thousand miles an hour and everything I could do to chase that wave and heaps of hurdles along the way stopped me and self-doubt stopped me a lot as well and I t kept telling myself I couldn't do it. So, I don't know. It was my own brain that was stopping me. That was it, really, when I look back on it now. But, uh, yeah, that first trip to Bali and that big surfer the bombing I had, yeah, that just uh, mixed up so many things, emotions in me and just churned out, I don't know, someone that just wanted to chase some big surf. Yeah, and you ended up on the North Shore of Hawaii not that long after. Uh, you know, you, you're a regular fixture there in the 90s. How old were you on, on your first trip over there and what are your memories of the joint? Yeah, I didn't get to... Hawaii till I was about 20, well, three, maybe 22, 22. Uh, I kept going back to Bali and, and Indo and, uh, I was on a trip up to Sumatra in 94 or 95 that I met, um, uh, guy by the name of Mike McHale. He's a North Shore lifeguard, but at the time he wasn't, he was class and surfboards for Chuck Andrus and, uh, Carl Schaffer and a few of the other guys met him on a boat and told me i asked him have you surfed one out bay and he said yeah there's heaps better ways than that and uh yeah one thing led to another and the end of the year i was uh in hawaii staying with him and i've stayed at his house ever since and him and his wife have just hosted me every time i've been and uh and and mike he's taking me some really good well some some places are blown out now like he took me there with 
uh, Kirk Bierke because uh, Mike used to glass a few of Kirk's boards as well. And I met Kirk early on when I started going to Hawaii uh, through Mike. And uh, we used to call him Captain Kirk and he used to take us down to, uh, he'd take us down the Himalayas and we'd paddle out and it'd just be me and Mike and, and Kirk. And uh, man, we had some good sessions down there. Probably not as big as some of the ones you see today, but at the same time, um, you know, for me, they were big and Kirk definitely surfed them bigger than I ever have. And he was out there on the day that Brock Little caught that unrideable wave at the eddy. And the day, the same day he got the big barrel at the eddy, Kirk was out Himalayas by himself or maybe with one other guy. But uh, yeah, later on he took me and, and Mike, Mike used to surf it with him a bit, but I owe a lot to Kirk and Mike for uh, introducing me to a lot of waves in Hawaii and just big surf and how to go about uh, getting out some spots and and finding my lineup and uh, and the, the best thing was we'd just talk shit out in the surf and there was no cameras there was no water patrol there was no other guys it was just us and it was reminding me of surfing out of reefs at home when we first started just by ourselves and it was unreal. Uh, yeah, I had some really good times back then. And sort of, it's like here now. You go back there, it's like Bali now. You go back there and everything's changed, but that's just the way the world is and it's going to forever change. And I'm just stoked. I've got some fond memories of, uh, of surfing some of those waves back then. So classic, man. I just watched Russ's new film, Outermost Limits of Leisure, I think it's called, and it is next level as you'd expect but yeah just amazing to to kind of contemplate the fact that kirk in his own right was a surfing icon a legend a shaper a big wave maniac of the highest order and that all those genes all that knowledge um and experiences fed into russ and it so it can't be surprising that you know russ is doing the best surfing in the world in waves of consequence Conequence, I should say. Uh, <laughs> maybe Nate Florence might have something to say about that. They're, they're kind of like neck and neck in, in, in that space. But yeah, it's amazing to see the offspring of Kirk and see, like, it's just kind of more proof of, of how nuts Kirk was that his son is just like even more psycho. But uh, yeah, so. Yeah, what kind of a, a mentor and mate was Kirk? Yeah, well, my mate Mike, I, he was more of my mentor, but the fact that he had his mate Kirk there, that was more like I just fed off Mike and fed off Kirk, but I'll just quickly go back to Russ. I watched that last night as well and blew my mind. The, and the other thing about that is, no one would ever know. No one in Australia really would know who Kirk was if it wasn't for us. But mm, the thing mm. that blows me away is Kirk would just be doing it. He was doing everything Russ is doing sort of thing, but just being Kirk just by himself or just, you know, no hype. And I'm not saying Russ is trying to hype himself. Definitely not because he's the most low-key, humble guy you'll meet. But I think he also knows that he needs footage to have a career but 
the thing that blows me away is Kirk was just doing it and he's shaping and just, I don't know, guys wouldn't even know what Kirk did. I don't even know what Kirk did and I know what he did, but I don't know what he really did. Like, <laughs> you know, I just, he was never going to tell me, oh yeah, the day that Eddie was huge that I was out Himalayas, you know, with one other guy. He was never going to tell me that. I had to hear that from like, you know, other people. And then I asked him about, oh yeah, it was pretty big. I'm like, it's not pretty big. It was fucking huge, mate. It had to have been. I don't know how big it needs to be to be that big at the bay, you know. But, yeah, Kirk, I, I always looked up to him, you know, after he took me from the first surf with Mike. And, um, yeah, always. Yeah, he's so inspiring. Even watching what he did down at, uh, down at Streaky when he was like, can't remember how old he was. Was he 55 or something? I thought yeah. that was like ancient. At the bomb there, he got the... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he got that huge one. And far out. I can't remember. Someone took a photo of it. It was no professional photographer. Just some random takes a photo. And I was just like, what the hell, Kurt? You're still going ham at that age? That's inspiring too. Like, that's more inspiring than what... It, when he took me to the waves in the first place when I was, you know, 25 years ago. Now it was, now it's still inspiring me, you know, 25 years later, just to go, wow, he's still, I don't know how old Kirk is now, 60, oh, I don't know. Anyway, however old he is, he's got 10 years on me minimum and just blowing my mind still. Mate, I was uh, down the South Coast last year, I think, for a mental run as swell and... He was out there on a self-shaped eight six or something. It was probably in the the eight to ten foot range, uh, like a, a a super steep a frame, like that may or may not be in nine lives. But uh, mate, he was getting <laughs> some crazy ones out there, like going light speed, going so fast, like super steep drops, uh, but really high performance, big wave surfing, so critical and ripping. Like ripping, like surfing it as good as anyone. It's mind blowing yeah. that he's in his sixties. Completely mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, he still blows me away. He, he makes some good boards too. I rode, uh, I rode a f- few of his boards in Hawaii. Um, yeah, like back in the day, and even you know, pretty much recently, I took two of his boards, the Jaws. Took a ten six that Riley Lang owned. And then I took one of his old, or actually it might have been one of Mike's old boards. And it was just 20-year-old gun. It was just way too narrow with set thrusters on it. And I threw it in a cardboard box and I threw Riley Lang's 10-6 Bjerke in a cardboard box and I jumped on a plane to Jaws. And on the first day, it was a warm-up day pretty much, I was coming in and I snapped the fin box out of Riley's 10.6. So then on the bomb day, I just had the 9.2 Bjerke. It was like way for fin for a 9.2, like super narrow. And I was like, that's all I got. And I, I, I paddled out and, uh, and I sat under everyone because the board just had no volume in it. And I ended up jagging a couple and the thing just knifed like the best board like ever. And I think if I was on the 10-2, the big, thick, modern, a bit wider in the nose and tail, I don't know. I might have got into it early, but I know I wouldn't have knifed a couple of these ones that I 
was, that I knifed. And when I say knife, I wasn't getting barrel, but I was like still steep and deep for me. <laughs> and yeah, and Bjorki's old nine two. I'd actually ridden at Himalayas a few times, and it went unreal. But honestly, I think it was like, twenty years old, and the board was still going unbelievable. Mate, massive shout out to Kirk Bjork Shapes because, yeah, he's there toiling away, making them for punters. So get in and fucking get your hands on one. I did. Well, this year I seen, yeah, I seen, seen a couple of guys riding them this year and uh, in some pretty heavy surf. And the same day Russ was dominating in that surf. So there's a couple of other guys charging. Uh, but if I say their names, we'll know where it is. Probably best not, <laughs> best not. But anyway, there's some guys from all around riding these boards, and yeah, yeah, they look like uh, like all the boys were charging on them and, and surfing them well. Yeah, fuck, Russ will be keeping him busy though. <laughs> going through a couple of boards. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Claire, Russ's sister, and Leanne, like. Uh, his mum, like, they're, they're all still surfing, like the forum. Like, that's the coolest family ever, eh? That's yeah. amazing, man. Uh, another guy you, you were close with, Ken Skin Dog Collins. Um, and you, you guys formed a pretty iconic duo in the noughties. Uh, can you tell us how that relationship began? Yeah, uh, man, I was on a two week holiday in Bali. Um, and my wife's a school teacher. She had to get home for school and I seen a swell coming and there, there was no real boy weather or anything like that back then. Well, not that I knew of. Anyway, some random dude just said there's a bomb swell coming. And uh, so I said to my wife, oh, I'm going to stay. And I jumped on one of those cheap charter boats from, from uh, Sanur or whatever to Zimbabwe. Uh, and... Uh, we hit deserts and it was two foot when we got there and we've been in about two hours, the whole lineup had cleared had gone from no one out to 40 guys out to all of a sudden there was like five guys out and I jumped in the water and it was like five, six foot on takeoff and like eight foot down grower, maybe 10 foot down grower. Anyway, I seen this guy ripping and stickers all over his board and I, uh, and I was like, oh, no. He opened his mouth and he had that yank accent. And I was like, oh, no, yank. And he's just annoying me. And, uh, and I sent him surf and I went even worse. He rips like, fuck, like, <laughs> whoa, I've got to deal with this guy. And he was just the biggest loudmouth I've ever seen. And anyway, I catch this like five foot rolling up the top and I just start pumping on my shortboard and just probably got one of the best backside barrels I've ever had in my life, just pumping, 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 and then doggy dog the last bit and didn't think anyone seen it. And um, I'm paddling back out and uh, I hear this, yo, it's like, turn around, it's this annoying prick. He's like, that was fucked up. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> like someone saw that thing. Anyway, yeah, he's like, we've paddled up the, the top of the point and he's, two Brazilians and two Hawaiians up there. And he's like, yeah, everyone, this is my mate, Justin. He just got the sickest pit ever. And I was like, oh, fucking cool. Like, this is all right. And then the next hour, we just heckled each other. Like, he was calling me a scabby convict, scabby cunt, you scabby <laughs> Aussie cunt. 
And then, yeah, we were just heckling each other for the rest of the surf. They took off and uh, we went back out deserts for another surf and it was pumping and we were laughing that they left. And then within 20 minutes, deserts just stopped. The whole thing just stopped. We're like, what the fuck? We waited for half an hour, a wave didn't come, and we jumped on the boat and we followed their boat and they went up to Gilly Air and surfed that right. And they, when we got there, they're like, you missed it. It was fucking all time. And we surfed and we thought we had the best session, but they claimed it was double the size when they were there. We went out on the island and partied the whole night. And uh, yeah, that's just how I got to meet him. And next minute he's emailing me and telling me to come and surf over there. But he came here first and... Uh, I just had a madder session and I think he spoke to Tony Ray and he said, like, we just had this today. I was like, what, the biggest surf I'd ever had uh, out of state. And um, and he heard from Tony Ray and he told me oh, like about this wave and I was like, yeah, I was surfing. And he's like, bullshit. And I was like, I was. So anyway, he didn't know that I was in the surfing big waves. He just thought I was just a surfer that he liked putting shit on. Anyway, he came over here just randomly. He's like, there's no waves in California. I'm coming over. It's during our winter. And we got pretty much skunked here. But we, we were watching the news one night. And we, seen a, um, we see a shark attack in WA. And in the background, there's pumping waves. And he's like, fucking let's go. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah. So we jumped a flight that night. And we uh, went to WA. And we scored the box pumping. And there were signs everywhere saying no surfing because of the shark attack. But the shark attack was like down at, uh, down for a valley. Oh, sorry, down at uh, like Lefties or something like that. And we were surfing up at, we were surfing up at, um, not Margs. We were surfing down at Margs and it was up there. Anyway, we scored the box pumping and Skin Dog was a bit rattled actually because he didn't know how to surf a slab. I, I was like, yeah, I was like blown away when I met him because I was like, fucking this loud enough American. And then he told me his name, Skin Dog. He was my fucking hero. I was like, fuck, I love watching him and Pete Mel and Flea and Barney and all those guys at, at Mavericks. And I was like, and the best thing I loved about him, I loved watching guys do airs and trying airs and that shit. And all them Santa Cruz guys were the best guys in the world at doing airs and they were mental charging Mavericks. And, uh, yeah, so he, did, he didn't know I was in the surfing big waves and he, we surfed the box and he was like, fucking slab surfing's totally different to big waves. He was scared of surfing slabs. But he slowly got his head around it. And anyway, then he, a couple of months later, he's like, come and surf Mavericks. And I was like, yeah, okay. Like, seriously. He, he rang me one morning and I was like on the, which was late at night here and I, or like late in the afternoon here and I booked a flight. And went straight away. And, uh, yeah, I went to surf ghost trees because Mavericks was fogged in. And he couldn't see it, so I changed my flight. I had all my stuff on a flight to San Fran. I just ditched that, jumped on a plane, swapped planes in L.A. to San Jose, paddled a mall out to ghost trees with someone else's wetsuit on because I didn't have any gear at all. And... uh and then he was telling him with Noah Johnson, which is another one of my heroes, which I was just like, far out. Can I, I can't believe I'm just surfing with these guys. And then, uh, yeah, he told me he knew about five or six waves and I broke my leg in five pieces. He took me in on the beach and pretty much 
told someone to take me to the hospital and he went back out and surfed. And uh, I was in that hospital. Like I'd just landed that morning. I was in the hospital by lunchtime. And I spent the next 10 days in the hospital just staring at the ceiling. I had five breaks. I broke my tibia in half, my fibula in four spots. Had a tibial nail inserted that night and um, stared at the hospital ceiling for the next 10 days. Jumped on a plane, went home. I can literally seen the US of A for about four hours other than <laughs> inside the Monterey hospital. And, uh, and then flew home and that was my first time to mainland US. That's and crazy, that man. Yeah, man kept in contact. And then he rang me a year and a half later and I, all I wanted to do was go and surf Mavericks. So he rang me a year and a half later and I went back and we went out Mavericks and it was a Garrett and another guy were towing. Pete and Tazzy were towing. And he said, oh, it's too big, we can't paddle it. And that's all I wanted to do. And he went in, grabbed our tow boards. And while he did, I caught two waves on the bowl or I was pretty close to, I was on the bowl at Mavs. And that's all I wanted to do. And he came out and it turned into a paddle session. And all the guys that were towing had to stop. And then it ended up like a mad session. About three hours later, the set broke way out beyond and everyone just got washed in. And, uh, and that ended that session. And that was, yeah. Man. Yeah, that was mean. It's a wild ride. Like, talk to us about how you break your leg in five places. Like, how, like, I've never heard of that. I mean, apart from a car yeah, crash. Because, well, yeah, you know, I was, I was, well, towing in and my foot was in the foot strap and I, you know, I've come around this big section and uh, there was a huge boil that ghost trees, there's rocks and boils everywhere. It's like, it's like a weird wave. It's like a, like one of the novelty waves here at home, but it's like 30 foot waves breaking. It's like not, <laughs> it's not like a perfect, like Mavericks or YMAO. Not that they're perfect, but you know, this wave at uh, ghost trees has just got just nooks and crannies everywhere of boils and uh, kelp hanging out on the surface and all this sort of stuff. And anyway, I bottom turned around this big section and I came off the top, which was sort of a bit fat and I was coming back down and there was a huge boil and I tried to just bunny hop it because I thought if I just plow into this boil, I'm just going to like bog in. So I just tried to like wheelie over it. And as I've landed off that, the board just slid out. My back foot came flying out of the foot strap. The front foot was still in the foot strap as the wave hit me. And the, like like 20 foot of wash just hit me. And my front foot is in the foot strap and the board just spins around in circles underwater. And, and while my foot's still in it, you know, and while, meanwhile, my body's not spinning around as quick as the board. So it just spiral fractured my whole lower leg. And, I was underwater and I was swimming to the top and that's when I realized I didn't know on the initial impact of it happening, but I'm swimming to the top and as I'm swimming, I'm like just doing a couple of slow, big double pumps with my arms and I'm kicking my feet and in between my knee and my ankle, I can just feel this hinge, just like where it's going back and forth in between my knee and my ankle, like it's another joint <laughs> like you know what I mean and I could just feel it so when I get to the top I didn't feel the pain but I knew I'd done something bad skinny come flying on the jet ski and I'm like 
he's like, you're right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I'm grabbing on, I'm going, go slow, go slow, because I've broke my leg. And he just pinned it to the channel, like, so hard. And my leg's just loose on the back, just flapping away. Just mid, you know, mid-lower legs just flapping up and down. I had a 4.3 that I'd borrowed. Anyway, we get to the channel and start screaming, like, fuck, mate. I said, go slow. I broke my leg. I broke my leg. And he goes, so? He goes, you want to get pinned by that 20-footer after you? We would have both been fucked. And I was like, okay, fair enough. But I, at first, I was just really pissed off at how fast he went. But, yeah. but then he pretty much took me into the beach, took the sled off, pumped me up the beach, and there was a couple of random dudes there, and he's like, can you take him to the hospital? Fucking, I was in my wetty. My, uh, my backpack, which I had with me, and my clothes, my passport, a little piece of paper I had my insurance details on. They were in, they were in uh, his wife's car. Meanwhile, I'm get get carted off to the hospital, which was real close by. Get, we went over a hundred speed humps to get out of this car park and then into the <laughs> hospital car park. They put me on this friggin' uh, on the trolley out the front, and uh, they wouldn't allow me to enter the the the, the foyer of the hospital. They wouldn't allow me to enter until I could prove I had insurance. And uh, so anyway, they've got this huge telephone line. Like, you know, the old school, you know, how you're stuck to the wall on your telephone and the line on it is coiled. They had one that was about 20 metres long. They dragged the thing out the front and they said, uh, you need to show us your insurance so you can't come in, basically. So I said, can you ring my wife? She's got the, my details. Up. So they reverse charged my wife. She answers the phone. She's like, hey, how was it? Is it surf pumping? And I was like, well, yeah, it's good. But uh, I really need you to find that information on the uh, QBE insurance, can you? <laughs> She's like, what do you mean? I said, I'm in hospital. I think I broke my leg. And uh, I need the insurance details. So she fed the insurance details out. And then once she did, they checked it. And then they took me in. Yeah. That's all so time. Skin Skin dog and Noah Johnson are getting thirty foot pits, <laughs> like back at Ghost Tree, and then that afternoon I was in surgery. Fuck uh, man, yeah, that's insane. That's that's a wild story, and you end up having some pretty serious like nerve damage from that injury, right? Like you you actually had uh, some kind of permanent numbness and, and like twenty percent loss of movement in your foot. Is that right? Yeah, I think my my big toe won't move up, like not at all. And my foot only moves about, it actually only moves about 20% like up if I lift it off the floor. Uh, or if I'm sitting down, I pull my feet towards my knees or whatever. Like I've, I reckon I've got about 10 centimetres my right foot will come towards where, oh, maybe 15, I'm looking at it now. About 15 centimetres, my right foot will move towards compared to my left. So, yeah, it's I kick my left toe all the time running around the crack neck, like because I don't lift it. I don't lift my foot high enough running around there, and I just kick my toe. It's not like it's, it's black now. My, my toenail's black. I'm kicking. Last time I ran around the crack neck, I kicked it. That's, uh, and it, yeah, it's slowly just sort of the older I get, the uh, the more work I've got to do on it. And I actually go to the physio once a week. Wow. Uh, 
guy at Wombaraw Wombie Physio, Mike McQueen, legend. He's like just pretty much sponsors me and just does a like does an hour of maintenance on me every week, pretty much to try and get me back. Yeah, I was going to say, well, what kind of a challenge does that pose when you're trying to knife late drops into the pit on some of these gurgly slabs? Like, obviously, uh, not having full movement of your foot uh, is, yeah, theoretically a bit of an issue. Yeah, it's punishing. Like, so many times I get to my feet, my foot's probably four or five inches from where it ideally should be. And then i got to sort of try and move it and, you know, in the you know, in the moment on one of those slabs, you just got to put up with wherever it is. And I've, the last sort of year, I've had some pretty awful surfs where my mind just mentally goes the wrong spot and just keeps telling myself, "I'm going to put my foot in the wrong spot. I'm going to put my foot in the wrong spot," and I actually do. And uh, normally it happens after a fair bit of fatigue, but I don't know. I've been a guy at physio. He's I, I only just told him about it, like in the last sort of three weeks, but he's got me doing some, uh, some band work just that he says helps my brain know where my foot is and, uh, just doing some repetitive stuff with the rubber bands and that, and, uh, some running action on the spot. And, uh, and it's actually helped. I thought I was, I don't know. I have so many mental hurdles. I jump, uh, for a, just everyday life and <laughs> one of the biggest ones is thinking about am I going to be able to surf the same again that injury is like 18 years ago it's like 2005 March March 2005 but I feel like it slowly got worse because I slowly haven't managed it and when I say I see Mike at Wombie Physio I have I do see him, but we sort of forgot about that injury because I've had so many other injuries, like tore my hamstring off the bone at work. Uh, and then work insurance didn't want to pay for it. And then they finally, they admitted it was their liability that didn't want to get surgery and told me that there's just more head fucks I have to deal with. But uh, yeah, told me that, you know, you've got three hamstrings in each leg, right? And they're telling me, oh, you've only pulled two off the bone. You've still got one. You don't need surgery. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've got five fingers. How about you cut three of them off and we won't bother sewing them back on because I've got two extra ones. Like, that's your mentality, you know. And they finally admit to it. But then by the time they want to do all the paperwork, the surgeon says, mate, you've left it way too long. You know, I'd, I'd stop surfing for 10 weeks longer and i slowly start surfing again and then he said and then and then i go and get surgery like 20 weeks later then i'm out for another six months and yeah it's like a bit of a head fuck with injuries other injuries that plague me are like um you know when i got hit in the back of the head at cape fear 2016 mm. the next day i was like furious i wanted to surf and they wouldn't let me. And I was like, why can't I surf? This is just, you know, I'm good to go. And then a week later, I thought, geez, I thought I was good that day. And probably best idea that I didn't surf. And then a week after that, I thought, wow, even a week ago when I was thinking, <laughs> a week earlier, I could have surfed. 
I still wasn't with it then. Yeah, and right. This is two weeks later. This is two weeks later. And, I, you know, I start thinking about even, wow. Slowly I just start realising how I wasn't even there two weeks later. And just took me a lot of things to get over that as well. And I didn't know it because when I'm in the present, I keep thinking I'm fine. It's not until later on I look back and go, wow, I wasn't even fine three weeks later, you know? Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, there's heaps of different injuries and that you overcome, but everyone's got injuries. Everyone, I, I mean, I'm waffling on now about them. Uh, I'm normally just try and be positive about it and say I've dealt with what I've dealt with. At least I'm not, you know, I don't think this, but I just thought of it now when I'm looking at it because I remember telling you about Mark one Stewart. Like, far out. Imagine if I was want to be a whinger. Like, he's got more to whinge about than me and then there's someone probably worse off than him. They can't mm. even use their crutches around there. So, yeah, I don't want to waffle on about that shit. But... No, it's interesting. No. <laughs> it's interesting. And, and it, it is the right attitude but it's also a cautionary tale of, you know, the, the realities that this brand of surfing carries with it. Like there's a high attrition rate, you know, you go to any of these spots you've mentioned, uh, where there's hollow waves of consequence and, and pretty much everyone's recovering from an injury or, uh, you know, the, the attrition rate is just so high in that brand, like hollow waves of any size carry with it a fair element yeah. of consequence. Uh, the more times you fall off, the more your percentages go up of getting hurt. And hey, I don't know what people's make rates are, but like even the best guys uh, get like probably fall off in the pit more times than they make them. I don't know. Like, well, they're falling off a lot and the better the guys are, the bigger the waves, the bigger the pit, the more consequence. So yeah, it, it, yeah. mate, <laughs> there's a fair bit of wear and tear on the body. That's for sure. Oh, definitely. Look at Mark Matthews. Like, wow, that guy's, oh, he's been through that much. Uh, you know, it just blows me away when I see what he's gone through. Yeah, to, like, so his story, uh, mate, he knew how to get his leg cut off, eh? Like, that injury was oh. so bad. It, the way it ballooned out yeah. with all the blood and, and, and like, he, he, what, severed an artery in his leg and it just exploded with, with blood and, uh, similar to yourself, although a more extreme case, like he's lost a lot of movement uh, and feeling and sustained some nerve damage in his leg too, right? Which has fully hampered his ability to surf. Yeah, so he's, um, you know, I don't know all the fine details, but I know after his surgery to save his leg and all that sort of stuff, I think it was well over a year after that that he had to get more surgery to try and get rid of the drop foot. Like and uh, and correct that, and that was pretty bizarre. What that, like what he went through to fix that as well, and it wasn't a guarantee, but he he went for it and he did it, and it even though it worked, he still doesn't have full range in his foot. So just getting to your feet, especially being your front foot, and I know for myself, like I've got no feeling in the on the top of my left foot, and when you're sliding to your feet, you don't realise you got like a like subliminally, you're just uh, channeling the feeling in your front leg because you slide your foot up the board as you plan it. And so, like, your brain just knows exactly when to release your foot and flip it onto its, you know, onto its 
um, sole on your board because that originally is sliding the top of your foot up the board before you plan it. So, the, um, yeah. So when you've got no feeling, it's totally foreign to be sliding your foot up and planting it. It's like you, it's you, it's not uh, communicating with your brain. Like the feeling's not communicating with your brain, so you, it's not the same sensation. So, it took me ages to, you know, get that just popping up right. And then, I, yeah, I just never thought I was going to surf again. And then once I did, I just took it all for granted, forgot about it, just charged on through life. And then uh, should have got the nail out of my leg, you know, uh, a year after it went in. And uh, I just started surfing like a month earlier. And they're going, you should get it out in the next sort of three months. I'm like, how long will I be out of the water for if that happens? And they're like, oh, another three to four months. And, I was, and then you slowly recover again. Like after that, like you slowly get back into surfing again. And I was just like, I just spent a year out and I was just like, no way in hell am I going to spend another three months out or four yeah, what, months what's out. The go, start- what's the go of that when you leave metal in your body? I've got a bunch of plates and screws in my jaw. Am I fucked? Oh, I don't think so. But, you know, in saying that, oh, I don't know if that's the reason why I haven't got full movement of my leg. I don't know if the operation they, they cut. Well, they accidentally done something to a nerve in my foot. I don't know, but I know I can't really run. Like when I run, there's no flex in the metal. You've got flex in your bones. So when you're running, like pounding the pavement, your bones are slightly flexing. But in my left leg, I've just got metal. So it's just like stiff and just jarring every time. Mm. It's like, that's the only reason I wanted it out. But, you know, I'm no Clint Kimmon, so I'm pretty much not going to be... <laughs> Too worried about, you know, doing a marathon. Although I've done one since, I got the medal in there, and it was pretty punishing. <laughs> Mate, <laughs> yeah, I don't think marathons are for you. Uh, the bionic leg, and interesting to note, both yourself and Matthews, <laughs> like, you know, you guys suffered those injuries toe surfing, and I, I often think like the situations that a jet ski can put a human in are not situations that we're set up for. Like our bones are just not built for that kind of velocity and G-force. You know, you're dancing with the devil. Yeah, I mean, guys are pushing it that hard paddling these days. Like, fuck. How's that wave Russ caught a few years ago? That ship is where he went over the step on the way down, just, just flawlessly just kept bottom turning through up under the pit so late. And then Albie Layer and them guys are just sending it on the biggest things so late but i don't know i do think you go a bit faster when you're getting whipped on the way than paddling but still like some of those things yeah they're doing lately pretty mind-boggling mm, mm. yeah i thought there's just some cosmic truth in there that waves that you can get yourself into with your arms under your own steam uh at some level yeah, like we're 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 built for that. We can't we can handle it. Like we'll get injured. Um, don't get me wrong. There's obviously yeah. awful injuries that are sustained in, in the paddle surfing game and the big wave game. But the toe surfing game is is it's another level. And the straps, obviously, getting your leg caught in straps, like fuck, mate, with that amount of force behind you, is just such a bizarre and, and sickening way to hurt yourself. Like what you're describing. Um, I mean, you see it happen. Uh, 
a bit like guys not getting that extent of damage, but just getting their, their feet um, stuck in straps and, and just getting bad ankle and knee tweaks and, and stuff like that, let alone, you know, when you're dealing with 50 foot waves. Yeah. There's been some heavy ones at Shipstones and I just think it chokes. <laughs> how some of the guys, how they haven't actually snapped legs off in their foot straps out there when it's huge. Uh, <laughs> Can't wait to see that. A couple of stumps just uh, <laughs> sticking out of the, <laughs> the toe board. The board. <laughs> Mate, and yeah, also it's, it's worth mentioning that throughout most of your career, you've been a firefighter. You've been working to make this living and not just working any job, working a heavy job, you know, dealing with death and disaster on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess surfing the waves, I enjoy surfing sort of, and I, uh, that sort of helps, you know, once you deal with that sort of shit, I think firefighting, it's totally different, but once it's more, for me, firefighting is more calculated. Like you, like we learned so much when we did 20 weeks in the college, you understand fire, you understand, uh, you know, the science behind the fire and you understand what and why and, and, and if you shouldn't go into a fire, there's people there. We always will. There's people inside. We'll always go in, but, uh, no matter what, but if there's not, we understand that, you know, uh, we're going to. We're going to uh, preserve our own life first if there's no one inside a fire. So, yeah, it's pretty calculated. And, and I remember you asked me the question just earlier about big wave surfing and being calculated and not, or you mentioned it. And in the early days, weren't as much as like later days. And now I'm, I'm uh, I don't know, I'm a bit more cautious, I guess. Every now and then there's this stupid little switch in my brain that just says, fuck it and send it. But it's like nowhere near as much as my earlier days. But yeah, the firefighting, that brings back a lot of reality. Brings back sort of like what we're here on earth for. It's like we're getting paid, but at the same time, you're there to help someone. You're there to be like at, at someone's most desperate time. We're there and it sort of feels good to give back. Sort of thing. Even though we're getting paid for it, you still, you know, you can be risking your own life and you're giving back. And I don't know, it's just before I was a firefighter, I was a lifeguard for five years for the local council. And it's similar for the lifeguards as well. It's just, uh, I don't know, some people think both jobs are a pretty cruisy job, to be honest. And uh, and I hear it a lot. And oh, what did you do? Play cards today, watch Fox Tell. And as a lifeguard, what are you doing? Just chip perving on chicks and all that sort of stuff. But I tell you, uh, when shit hits the fan, it's like, and, it, you know, and it's game time. You sort of step up and, I don't know, it's a rewarding job. And, yeah. And, yeah, even being out big surf, all, since the day I remember paddling out to the outer reef, I just remember saying to my mates, there's three of us out here. Keep an eye. Whoever's just caught the last wave, the two, two other guys keep an eye on them. And I, I guess it's just goes back to when I was young and, you know, my mum was young and my dad wasn't there. My, far out, my mum could have been seriously pissed off her head 
drunk and you know my sister's looking after us you know and she'd be the one saying look after each other that's just since day dot you got your crew you look after them and it goes with everything i've had in life whether it's my siblings my family now my workmates or the guys i surf with yeah just you got your crew and you just make sure you're looking after them mm. mate and you know sadly there was one family member that you couldn't save uh i understand your brother took his own life um you know what i guess what did you attribute that to and 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 what kind of an imprint did did that leave on you uh well yeah so to be honest i don't have answers to a lot of it which is the hardest part for me to deal with the whole thing And then, <laughs> well, uh, so many what ifs. Me and my brother, I was in Bali, had one of the best surfs I've had at the bottom of Ulu's, and I got a message off my dad and said, oh, your brother's, uh, your brother's gone missing. Well, you, yeah, brother's gone missing. Let me know when you're back. Anyway, I'll get back from Bali a couple of days later. And I, um, I go straight around and see my dad and he said, oh, yeah. He just went and said he was going to the shops and he hasn't been back. And my dad and my brother shared a house. They owned this house at North Shelley. And, uh, yeah, I was messaging him and I was ringing him and I was, me and my brother played chess online. And uh, so I messaged him on this, on the chess, on this chess app, like <laughs> through the message. Like, your move, mate. Like, hurry up and have you go. And uh, and just, mate, I, to be honest, still today, it's like 12 years. Oh, that's all right, man. That's so gnarly. I'm sorry, even, yeah. Nah, I don't know. Yeah, it's been 12 years. I don't know. One of the worst things ever happened to me. But it's like I've met so many people who've gone through the same thing mm. and I've talked to talked to a bunch of young blokes who've lost brothers and fathers to suicide and it hurts talking about it but it doesn't it makes me feel better after I talk about it because I know that uh, not that it's bringing awareness to it but it's making it real for someone and that it's not just call lifeline, friggin' beyond blue, black dog, friggin' whatever, you know, like just when you see all these mainstream news put on like a cop out, it's like a cut and paste. I was getting them off my work when they were trying to terminate me. Oh, in bad times, call lifeline or shit like that, you know, it's just the biggest cop out. And actually, you need to see someone like this. Or you need to go to a funeral. Or you need to, to uh, understand that it's real, and like all that. I mean, it might be good and well, but until people start talking about it, until like, and I know there's a lot in the last ten years, a lot of people have been talking about it. But until you know, you have a proper conversation about it, calling Lifeline and that, you 
what needs to happen is they need to tell people how to deal with the situation. Like if someone's in that, if you, if someone's in that uh, predicament that they, they're going to kill themselves, or like how to deal with it, how to be first aider for that. And, uh, and I know there's a few programs going around about it now, but, uh, yeah, uh, fuck it's, it still plagues me today, mm. to be honest. Oh. And I don't, I don't know enough about it. All I know is me talking to young blokes about it and guys that have gone through it or guys that, you know, their, their brothers have killed themselves or whatever, me talking to them about it, I feel a little bit selfish when I, when I finish talking to them because I feel like I've just done myself that much good. And it's not even about them one bit. It's about what I've just released and what I've just sort of, got through myself and what I've just put myself through to help get myself through it. And then I look back and go, well, I hope I help them a bit <laughs> because mm. I feel like I've robbed them <laughs> because I feel like I've got more out of it than them. But then in saying that I hear from their parents or their, or their aunties or whatever. And then they tell me, wow, that's one step. They started talking to us now and they've started to open up and, and stuff like that. So, I don't know. I've gone off a sort of tangent on that question a little bit, but uh, yeah, we just we just need to fucking be there for our kids, man. Mm. Mm. Yeah, uh, mate. I mean, first of all, like you know, shedding tears is really healthy. Like I actually, again, was just you know going through this biohacking wormhole and read that when you cry, it's actually. Uh, it aids neural plasticity. There's this rewiring of the brain that occurs when you cry that uh, enables the brain to kind of regain its, its health, it, it, its homeostasis or uh, I'm kind of muddying up terms here, but ultimately, and you feel that after you, you let tears out, like you feel uh, relieved. And um, I think like th that in itself is a, is a lesson that, there's no shame in that. And I think the whole like men don't cry, boys don't cry. I think he's fucking so toxic. And, you know, I listen to Mike Tyson's podcast all the time and mate, there's many episodes like, like yourself, you know, he'll be talking about things and, and the tears just well up in him and, and he'll start crying out of nowhere. And on the same, like, uh, you know, I can be talking about things that are seemingly random, like just little memories from my hometown or, um, uh, situations that I'm in that bring up a, a sense of like, it can be pride and, and camaraderie. Like w when people helped me or um, we were part of some, some crew that helped other people and I'll cry or um, like, I, you know, even watching, like, like I'll, watching sport, like, fuck man, I cry all the time watching sport. It's so weird. Like watching inspirational performances, some football team or some, something that it gets me in uh, and sadness as well. When I, when I talk to people about certain aspects of my life that are pretty awful, like, you know, I'll just, I'll crack up on the spot and no warning. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm not really ashamed of that anymore, but you know, for most of my life I was, and um, you know, it is what it is like that, that shit needs to come out of you. Know, tears, tears like, 
when you it's just in a sense it's like poison releasing that's what it feels like <clears throat> but yeah. back to the, the the mental health topic like mate they don't tell you how to live in school no one teaches you how to live how to take care of yourself they teach you fucking algebra and some whitewashed version of history but they don't they don't teach you that alcohol gambling sugar um you know shit sleeps digital technology all these things will fucking absolutely <laughs> leave you on the bones of your ass mentally instead all these things are often prescribed uh, as a solution to sickness or they're the first thing you turn to when you are feeling shit as an escape you, you and we're just pushing these illnesses further underground further into our central nervous system we're not processing uh, this pain and trauma and, and there's no real outlets to process this pain and trauma. And as a result, like, um, you know, we're, we're a pretty, pretty sick society. I mean, you look at places like America, it's, it's the richest country probably in the history of, of planet earth and it, it consumes more pharmaceutical drugs than anyone on earth and has, you know, awful mental illness problems. So like this consumerist, capitalist paradigm that we live in is just so efficient at generating sickness uh and, and people have to to wisen up to that and, and know what's good for them you got to know what's good for you and no one teaches you that it's oh. crazy man i, I there's too many things you just talked about that i'd like to comment on but uh one when i didn't process you know my kids are little and my brother's suicide i was over 12 years ago, my kids right now are 17, 19, 21. So 12 years ago, my kids are little. He, when he suicided, I didn't really, I didn't process it. I didn't want to grieve. I didn't want to see, I didn't want my kids, they didn't understand what suicide was. I didn't really, I, tell, I told them he died and I didn't really tell them how, you know. Uh, you know, my youngest was five or something like that. So, so I didn't really process it. I didn't go through, you know, the grieving and it took me about four years to actually realize that uh, I hadn't grieved and all of a sudden I felt this mad depression. Like I didn't know what it was and I didn't know why it was. And I was just at work, just, I was just like this, I had no emotion. And I was just like, um, you know, something funny, like I wouldn't laugh. And, come home and I'd smile with my kids, but that was about it. I stopped surfing for about 10 or 12 weeks and I just didn't know why. And I did, I had no idea what it was about. And then uh, I thought, man, if these bombies break at home, am I going to surf? Because that's the one thing that I knew that I loved. And I was taking my kids to sport and stuff and I was doing stuff with them, but I probably wasn't there as in, uh, emotionally as what I should have been. I didn't know why and I was just so in such a dark place and then I've just cottoned on I was just like fuck I'm just grieving my brother right now and I'm just depressed you know I'm self-diagnosing myself like just what the fuck is wrong with me you know I would never I wouldn't go out I wouldn't drink I wouldn't do anything you know and I just started really searching my inner soul just thinking that's my brother it's four years later it's my brother and I'm like fuck I'm just having to deal with it. And and uh, and then I started realising that that's what it was. And 
I would, and I was purposely not surfing. I was trying to punish myself. That was the one mm. thing I loved the most. I'm like, I'm not doing it. Why? I don't know why. He can't surf. He can't do anything. He can't breathe. So I was just like punishing myself so bad. It took me ages to go for a surf and finally snap out of this thing. And I did. And then I went and seen a doctor. <sighs> Worst thing I ever did. He put me on these meds. I took these meds for, and, I, and, and this is just for me, not not for anyone else. I'm not trying to tell people not to take meds when they're in a depressed state or anything like that. But I was on these meds for six months, and I was more flatline than I'd ever been. So these meds made me just flatline. I had no highs, had no lows. So it was like earlier when I had no depression. I mean, when I didn't realise I was in depression, it was it was like that still. And uh, but I just had these weird little moments in my brain. I felt like I was, I had all these feelings and I'll, I'll let you know what they are in a second, but I just, I ended up getting off these meds after six months and then, uh, and then I went a bit crazy when I first went off them and then I was off them for about six to nine months. My wife said something to me and she sort of noticed that I hadn't been taking these meds, <laughs> which I'd been trying to change my whole outlook for a long time, but I didn't know how to do it. Anyway, she cotton on to me I went back and I said to the doctor look can I have these meds again but can you just give me half the dose I was on last time because I didn't really like it and he goes why oh actually no sorry I took the meds for another sort of three months and I that's right and I just felt numb and dumb just I felt stupid didn't have recall on memory and I just felt numb I still had no uh, no highs and lows and that and I said can you just half dose me I'm I want to get off these meds Anyway, he goes, oh, why? And I told him exactly what I just told you. you know, I've, got, I've got no highs, no lows. And I actually had a few thoughts of suicide. Anyway, he said to me, he's on his computer, he goes, that's not the, that's not the side effects of these drugs. I said, well, wait, it is. It's my side. That's what I feel when I'm on them. Because I, and I know because I've been off them for nine months and I'm back on them and it's the same feeling I had before. And he goes, that's not it. Anyway, he prescribed me double the dose. And said, here you go, see you later. And I was like, what? So I screwed it up, the piece of paper, the, the prescription, and threw it in the bin. I said, mate, you didn't listen to me one bit. I just wanted half the dose. You just give me double. So anyway, that was my whole journey from that point on to like, holy shit, what is, what's going on? And I had to start reading books and start. I was just, you were talking before, and I just went into my, into my, wardrobe and found the one called uh, the resilience project and it brings me back to something you were saying and it's just like the guy couldn't understand the guy that wrote the book how come everyone in australia just uh, come there's so many depressed people when we have everything when mm. he's turned up at a place in india and they've got nothing the kids one kid's got a pair of shoes with the toes cut out of them because they're too small for him and he's going how good's me shoes i got soccer shoes you know and just Oh, and they've got a rusty swing set and he's going, how good is this? And that's all that the little school had, a rusty swing set and this kid had some sh shoes with no toes in them and the rest of the kids didn't have any shoes. And they're getting a bowl of rice a day and they're all so grateful for everything mm. they've ever got and they're mm. all so happy. And it just goes to show that, you know, just what they, like they'd pray, they'd meditate and they'd pray and they'd just be grateful. They'd give gratitude when they were praying to whoever they were praying to. And it doesn't matter who you're praying to. 
you got gratitude for what you got, mate. Life can be so much different. That's so true, mate. Gratitude is so powerful. Uh, and on top of that, you know, all these kids, yeah, they may be poor, but they're hanging out all the time. And you can get the same thing from hanging out as you can from surfing big waves, which is that, you know, you're focused on someone else. You're focused on something. You're focused on the conversation. You got to pay attention. Otherwise you'll get ripped on. Like that's, that rips you out of the ruminating. They say rumination is a cancer. And in our culture, like we're in an epidemic of loneliness and, and disconnection, especially in suburban places like the Northern beaches and, and the sunny coast where, you know, it, it's, it's kind of this like suburban density. It, I, I'm from the city where people were racked and stacked on top of each other. But uh, because of that, like you were never alone. Like there's, there's always pe- people around that you knew always like you fucking couldn't walk out your front door without bumping into crew. And I noticed that living in regional and rural areas, like my mental health dipped a lot um, just purely due to social isolation there's so many factors uh it's kind of hard to know where to to start with it all but uh but back to your story like grief you know grief is just stress like and, and i tend to think mental illness depression in particular is mostly the result of stress and inflammation if you can remove those two things then your body will be able to function correctly and, and, and you just won't suffer so much in, in depression and, and sickness. Um, and how do you reduce stress and inflammation? Well, I mean, stress is defined as the difference between how things are and how you want them to be. And, you know, how things are in your case was that your brother had passed away and how you wanted it to be was you wanted your brother to still be alive. And in that gap, stress forms. Uh, and stress is just cortisol in the body uh, and that make, creates immense sickness and cortisol cancels serotonin. So serotonin is what makes you feel happy and makes you feel anything. And without serotonin, um, like with, with cortisol, you can't have serotonin. So if you don't process grief, then you just sitting in cortisol for fucking months, if not years and depression is an inevitability and, that's the reason I get into the ice bath every day is, is because it cuts off my ability to produce cortisol uh, and reduces inflammation. And yeah, all, all these, you know, for me, it's, it's meditation, breath work, exercise, ice baths and community. Um, but community is kind of the hardest one to, to generate because yeah, like living in a regional area, not living in my hometown because it was too expensive uh, and we don't have that structured community anymore. Like, you know, unless you're playing in a football or cricket club or a board riders club, um, you know, people don't go to church anymore. People don't pray together anymore. So, um, yeah, it's kind of sport is our church really. Yeah, man. And like just in the last, just this year, uh, like I never trained to surf big waves. I never did any training like, and I thought, I sort of, it was weird. I nearly prided myself on not training. Like, I don't know, I thought I was cool because I didn't train. I'd go and catch some crazy sort of waves. And, you know, as you get older and things catch up with you, uh, I don't know, I, I started thinking I should be training. But then, yeah, I took my kids training. And this this guy, Luke Grant, and uh, 
he was training. I jumped in with my kids and I started training with him. And then, uh, then I had a bad hamstring. I stopped training. And then, then, uh, then I heard that he started this group and they call it the men's group. And that's the guys over 30. And, uh, and like his brother, uh, Matty Grant, I, I work with him at the fire station. And he's like, oh, Luke's starting this group for over 30 men. And uh, it started off, there was about four or five of them, and now we've got like 25 guys. And, mate, every Tuesday and Thursday morning we hit Berkeley Vale uh, footy gym. And, uh, and it's all footy players and ex-footy players and ex-surfers. And, uh, oh, I shouldn't say ex-surfers, we all surf still. But the footy boys sort of not playing footy. There's a couple that are still. And, uh, yeah, so we, we just do like circuit work. And then on uh, Wednesdays, like this morning, we jumped in the sauna for half an hour and then uh, jump in the ice baths after it and do a bit of breath work in the middle. Magic. The breath work. Yeah, but I'm, I'm trying to get into that as well. And, uh, man, we've just got such the chorus group of, fuck, I want to cry now. <laughs> the boys there are fucking legends. Like, every one of them. Like, it's such a good crew. Like, mate. We're, everyone's looking out for each other. One of the boys had a back surgery yesterday. We're on a WhatsApp group. Everyone's like, fucking all the best, mate. We got another, we got a thing where, uh, what does he do? I want to quickly look on my phone and have a look, but it's like, uh, you got to nominate one of the boys and you got to say who your hero was, what your hardest times ever were, and your highlight. So it's three H's. So you got to name your hero. You gotta name your your hard like hardship, and I, my hardship was like, and I said like it should have been when my brother passed away. That should have been the worst time of my life, and it was at the time. But then, when I got stood down over the whole government, um, how they how my workplace implemented the COVID restrictions, that was my hardest time because I had to deal with um, just my family life not having a not having an income, you know, and 20 years of dedication to the fire service. And then, you know, how am I going to explain that to my wife and kids, you know, that I'm going to choose my belief over the fire brigade's belief. And because of that, I'm going to lose a 20 year career. So that was a head fuck for me leading into the time they made that policy. And that was a head fuck for me when I stood down for six months after it. And, uh, yeah, anyway, that's just one example. All the boys chuck in. We're, mate, that's it's the maddest yeah. group. Saturday morning, yeah. we slog it out and have a hard session down the beach or somewhere. And then we do, yeah, Tuesday, Thursday, and then Wednesday's recovery day. And, mate, all the boys have just got each other's backs. And we're, we're surfers and we're footy players. But, you know, we're all, all of us got families. All of us are going to work straight after it. We got four o'clock sessions in the morning, going to six o'clock sessions in the morning. And it was, it was just one group. It just got too big and we blew it out into two groups and now three. And, uh, but we all see each other. Everyone high fives in the morning. No, not high fives, a big slap, you know, just a big handshake and just, I don't know, it's fucking the best thing ever. When Mate, that's magic. Beaches. Don't yeah. have it. I think they should. Central Coast didn't have it until... Luke Grant fucking started it. And uh, just a quick one. He's, his old man was the first Canberra Raiders captain. He's, really? Uh, Dave Grant. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, 
anyway, just just a bit of trivia out there, but yeah, love it. Fuck, I tell you what, made me want to cry just fucking talking about the boys because everyone's got each other's back, and it's fucking exactly what we need. Mate, we do have a men's group here, and they are so powerful. I don't exactly know why, but our one's kind of like there's like a yarning circle, so people talk about um just like their last week or, or two weeks and there's just something about that that sharing of, of of your deepest darkest uh experiences with other people and 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 watching it register on other people's faces and knowing that they're there to support you and and they care and they're giving you information back that might help you that that exchange i never would have predicted how powerful it is um, you know, I haven't experienced anything like that. I, I spent my whole life playing football and in board riders clubs and various sporting clubs, but those kinds of convos are, are never had in that environment. And that's not like, mate, that's not to put, put down those institutions. Those things were so life preserving for me, um, growing up, but this, this men's group thing, it's like, it's like all of that plus a lot more. Um, and I, it may, it's so good that you flag that because yeah, that, that, that alone is, is a huge step towards solving a lot of these problems. It's it's just a matter of connection and, and, and knowing there's people out there who care about you, like, and, and reminding yourself of that fact once a week, once every couple of weeks, it's, it, 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 I mean, I don't know what the science is around that, but it's just fucking undeniably powerful. Hundred percent. Like it would be good to know the science behind it because fuck, it makes me feel. I'd never, mate. I'd sleep until eight o'clock any day I was not at work. I'd be sleeping until eight o'clock for the last five years, easy. Fuck, the surf would have to be good for me to get up early and go for a surf. Like if I get up and I'm out there, some of the boys go, "You shit the bed." Like rarely ever happens that I get out there early. And uh, mate, I'm up at four four. 30 just pumped to go and slaughter myself at this circuit or whatever and i'm fucked what i'm doing i'm like why am i doing this but mate i just charge up in the morning and just go every every fucking morning i'm just that pumped to do it i'm loving it i'm like i sleep i, I used to have the worst sleep pattern i'd get up at three and couldn't go back to sleep i'd start looking at my fucking stupid phone scrolling shit on instagram and i'm what the fuck? Man, that is like that? so like, bad for like, you. Looking at your phone. Like a teenage kid. I remember you telling me that a year ago. I was telling you, or two years ago, I was telling you, you're going, that is the worst thing. And I'd still do it. And I knew it was the worst thing. It's like fucking drinking alcohol. You know it's the worst thing. You're still going to do it. <laughs> but it's fucking good at the time. So all these, yeah. So, yeah. But now, mate, this group, I, just, I wish they had one for the young, for the young guys, you know. Because this one's for thirty over sort of thing, and and now fuck it really, I don't know if you've heard of uh, fucking Logan's. Fuck, it pains me to talk about it. I wasn't even mates with Logan, but fucking knew him, and yeah, have you heard Logan Steinway? No. He 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 suicided two weeks ago. Fuck. Hectic. He's twenty years old, mate. From Co- uh, he's sorry, he's from McMaster's Beach, and fuck, he had everything going. Oh, I did hear about this guy, man. Uh, he was a, a really good fuck, surfer, he's such a good surfer, sponsored by Rip Curl or someone. A nice kid. Yeah, yeah, like he'd surf North Shelley, 
because he, he had a girlfriend up this way. And whenever he'd surf North Shell, mate, politest kid, most respect for anyone. So He was so far ahead of his time when it came to YouTube and all that sort of shit. And I think a couple of kids his age were probably a bit jealous of him because some of them might have thought they were better surfers than him, but he had, you know, more sponsors or he was a fucking good surfer. But, yeah, he's suicided and fuck, it hurts. Like, you know, I, I didn't know him real well, but I knew him enough to stop and say good day and have a chat and have a good chat with him. But, you know, he wasn't, he's from, you know, 30 minutes south of where I live and, and my kids are similar age, you know, I've got a 20-year-old, a, a 19-year-old and a 21-year-old and they used to go in surf comps and we'd see him there all the time. It just pains me. It pains me as well. I knew what my parents went through when their son suicided, so I just feel for any parent that would have to go through it. So, yeah, I just wish they'd do something for the young generation where they could have a group like this men's group that just fucking empowers you so much every day, you know. Um, and, yeah, just mm. I know there's a lot mm. of awareness out there, but it just doesn't seem to be doing the right thing or doesn't seem to be getting through because still today, I mean, 12 years ago, I remember seven to eight people die by suicide in Australia every day. And I heard the other day it's nine people every day, you know, on mm. average. Yeah. Something's, so, something's so, really off, man. Something's really off. And it, it trips me out thinking, you know, back to my youth and, and the insane levels of, of dysfunction and crime and drugs and violence and, and absent parents that I was surrounded by, you know, all of my mates, were from this world and no one topped himself, you know, not one. And yet in the generation beneath us, uh, multiple, multiple. And I'm like, what the fuck happened in, in that short amount of time? And I can only yeah. really point to, to digital technology. And that, that's that scenario you were just talking about. Something as benign as waking up and, and flicking on your phone screen or flicking it on before you go to bed. Like what people don't realize is that that fucking destroys your sleep. Like you may be able to get back to sleep. Maybe you're not able to, but ultimately it destroys the quality of your sleep. And if your sleep's fucked, you have no hope of having good mental health. So something as insidious and benign as that, just having a device uh, on your bedside table and, and looking at it before you go to bed is enough to trigger serious mental health issues. And, you know, we're speculating, but, uh, this poor Grom, like, you know, he's in the, the social media content producing game. Who knows what notifications and alerts he had set and, and at what times he's checking that stuff. And once your sleep is ruined, your ability to, to perceive the world correctly, it's, it's not possible anymore. Yeah, man, that's one thing I've learned. Yeah, I, when I told you I was sleeping at eight or nine, eight or nine o'clock, you know, most of the times because I didn't have proper sleep at night. Like during the night, I hadn't slept properly, and uh, since I've been getting up early and going and, and doing stuff with the boys, fuck, I just want to go to bed at eight o'clock time around. And when I sleep, I do think it might have something to do with like the lack of alcohol I've had lately. But my sleep patterns just—I just sleep right through every night, like no more waking up, and. Uh, yeah, I think I can contribute that to getting up early, wearing myself out, not looking at my phone at night because I don't. And then I've, you know, abstained from alcohol for a fair few months now. That's definitely, after the first week or so of that, that just, 
has helped. And yeah, and a little bit better diet in the last few weeks definitely help my sleeping pattern. And like you said, you get up and you're ready to go and you're not you're not fatigued. Like your brain's not you don't have that brain fog. Mm. You're not fatigued. It makes a huge difference to the rest of your day and what you do for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because once you're fatigued, once you're a little bit off, it can spiral really quickly. You can start to make poor choices that only deepen the well of stress. Uh, and it may, a couple of poor choices in one stressful day can feed into another one and it can become a downward spiral very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Anyway, man. So good to chat to you. I miss you, man. I'll be, be good to catch up and, uh, yeah, can't wait to see you again. Actually be, be unreal. You, you, you're one of the, the real classics and, uh, appreciate come, you. Come for a surf. Yeah. Come mate. back and have a surf, mate.